This week we continue our sermon series, The Heart of Lent and the Attributes that Come with Lent. And we're specifically looking at what it means to lament something. And what do we do if we're kind of caught up in the loss, not just of a person, but we're lost in that hope of something that would be better. How do you move past that? And that's what we're going to talk about. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, March 13th, 2016. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We're finishing up our series. We're talking about the heart of Lent, which is very, very different than the attributes that you have in other types of the year. So at Christmas time, we say Christmas is kind of a cheery time. Buddy the Elf tells us that, right? If you want to make people feel better, you just start singing a song so all can hear, and that makes people happy. Uh, the, the attitude of giving, which we talk about at Christmas time, is like a, kind of uplifting, right? You, you feel good at Christmas time. Lent is a little bit different. Because you talk about uh, things like suffering, which we talked about last week, facing the things that we really suffer with and how difficult that is. And we talked about sacrifice, which is not everyone's favorite. We touched on repentance. And repentance means you have to admit that there's something wrong with you, and that's not everyone's favorite thing to do again. So we're, we're kind of hitting at humility. Uh, the last one that I, I want to talk about is lament, which I explained a little bit to the kids. How many of you knew, is lament a common word or not? So I... Okay, no, this is not super common. So lament basically means mourning. Usually when they say it's a lament, they're talking about something that's written. So someone might write a lament. Now, does this sound familiar for any book in the Bible? Lamentations. There, it should be called Lamentations, but it's Lamentations. And it's written by a guy named Jeremiah, who's a prophet. So, and, and he is known as the weeping prophet, which would be about the last person you'd ever want to invite to, like your wedding or something like that. But he had reason to mourn because when you mourn something, you're really mourning a loss, right? And he had reason to. So imagine this. Uh, we're in Jerusalem now, and things are fine, and, and except then the northern tribes, like Wyoming North, is taken over by Canada. Can you imagine this? They just lured them for how nice they are, and um, or depending on who becomes president, I think there might be people going up to Canada. So, they, so they're gone, right? So they, and they never come back. And so now it's just our little nation of Judah, and there's the, uh, Judah and Benjamin. And suddenly the Babylonian government comes over, and that's roughly like Chicago area. So what would be worse than getting shipped off to Chicago? Gary, Indiana. But I mean, besides besides Gary, Indiana, what could be worse? It, it'd be if you're left behind, right? Like, it's not, it's one thing to go experience this. We talked about suffering. Is it made better when you're with someone? I think it is. But what happens if you're the people left? Like, all your friends, think of your good friends now are gone. Like, all the good leaders, gone. The smart people, they take them all. And all that's left is you look around and go like, huh, I thought it was more important than this. I'm left behind. Jeremiah is one of those guys left behind. And he's just sitting there, and he laments. Worship life is never going to be the same. The temple's destroyed. Uh, he's never going to have the same uh, weekly thing where he meets with his friends. He probably had family members that were taken. And there he sits and he laments and he writes the book of Jeremiah that's written actually where most of the nation is over in Chicago and he's sitting here. So lament though, what's the most common thing to lament? I gave just the example of the, the Packer game. I don't usually mention sports teams, but I, honestly that one still bugs me to this day. Like, it, what if I think about the game? I can't think about it. It's so frustrating. Other losses, you're like, ah, they were better. Not that one. Because you start telling yourself a story, right? There's a story that says if things would have gone differently, the Packers lost to the Seahawks who utterly destroyed our Broncos. And you're like, well, I think our team could have at least won, right? So you start telling yourself this story 
And so you lament the loss of what might have been. But what's most common that you lament, you think? I'd say people. And I think there's a lot of people here, I mean, talking to you, and you, you talk about the loss of children, uh, you talk about the loss of parents. This is really, some of you, when you're really young, the loss of um, people you care about or friends, and this is really difficult. And so you, you lament. It's not just the loss of that moment. I think it's the loss of this idea of what might have been, right, if they were still here. So you miss out on that. But I still don't think lament just stops there. Because we, we live in a culture that's talked about dreams, right? You're, if you're in America, you are supposed to dream big. It doesn't say, like, dream average. Like, no one says that. There's this idea that, okay, when you're a kid, you can be anything you want to be. And it, you did. You dreamed about, I'm going to be an astronaut, or I'm going to be a professional sports person, or I'm going to be, you know, middle management supervisor that drinks too much because I can't stand it. How many of that, anyone have... Right, that's not part of the dream sequence, but so you have all these dreams about what you're going to do, and then you have dreams, okay, I'm going to have a kids, and how many of you knew how many kids you're going to have? You did if you played the cootie catcher, because that told you how many kids you're going to have, you know, those little things where you go like that with your fingers. Kid at school just made one that was like this big. (laughs) I think they're called cootie catchers. Am I off on that? If I'm off on that, I'm very thankful I'm off on that, that I don't know that knowledge. So you want to know how many kids you got. You start dreaming about who you're going to marry, and of course this person's going to be super handsome, the person's going to be beautiful, and you're going to have this great job, and you're going to make gobs of money, and you're never going to have to worry about anything, and your kids are going to all be well-behaved, right? It's just going to be like TV. Did your dream become reality? Some of those things do, right? But not all of them. It's impossible. Only in Disneyland do, do wishes come true. Otherwise, we, we, we have hopes and we have dreams and your parents say, you know, go for it. How many of you are professional athletes? As far as I know, we don't have a single astronaut. There's one that goes to our Littleton church. You know that, one, you know that picture where the guy's in the distance? Uh, it's really famous. I, I, should, I should know his name before I just bring it up out of the blue. There's a real famous picture. It's actually the cover of my physics book where the astronaut is off for the first free walk, I think, one of them all, of all times, and his helmet's down, and there's a picture. I'll, I should show that. I'll show you next week. Anyway, he goes to our Littleton church. So I'm not going to preach that sermon there, but I mean, <laughs> then I'll use firefighter. So you have all these dreams, but those dreams don't necessarily come true, right? And there's, there's things that break your heart. So maybe you had this dream about, like, the marriage you're going to have is going to be perfect, but now, in reality, it's ended in divorce. You lament, right? You have this idea of what it's going to be like when you have even something as simple as a pet, right? The, the dream of that little puppy or that cat and how it's going to snuggle you, and you just, like, say the command and it happens, and then you have a real dog, you're right, that's alive, and it does things that dogs do, and you're like, huh, this isn't quite... You kind of lament that, right? You lament the job that you have is not quite what you want. All of these things, how do we handle, and that's really what we want to talk about today, how do you handle not just the loss of people? That's, a, that's in a whole different category of grief. How do you handle the loss of hope when that's like snuffed out? And so I want to tell you a story, and this one's again a long one because we're talking about the life of David, and I'll, I'll try and make it interesting as we go. So most of the people know a few things about David, right? You know that he killed Goliath and that he had an affair with Bathsheba. That's most people's knowledge. You know, do you know when those happened in his life? Most people don't. As far as, I mean, if, you, if I told you it happened like a week apart, some of you are like, wow, that's a busy week. But that's not exactly how it went. So I'm going to start from a timeline for your perspective on this side of it, and I'll walk over. So 
we're, we're doing estimates. This is based on a pretty decent timeline by a guy who lives down in Colorado Springs. So David, around 10 or 13 years old, is picked to be the next king, but Saul is already currently king. We estimate that maybe five years or so later, so he's about 17, late teens, is when he steps up because he's not quite in the army yet, and he steps up and there's this opportunity to fight Goliath. He is so appalled that this Philistine would mock God that he says, I'll, I'll go do it. And he goes and he takes down Goliath. Now he's, and you're like, okay, I bet his life was fantastic from them on. Not exactly. He's like a child star. That's that. If you make TV too early, like the Wells Connection, that's, that's not good. That's like the Madden cover. So he made, um, he's super famous and everyone knows him, but this causes jealousy in the king and he can't stand this and he gets angrier and angrier. And we talked about suffering where the king had him marry his daughter as a snare. The king sent him off to to uh, lead a thousand men with the intention that he was going to actually die. The king does all these things to try and thwart him, and there's a 15-year period where he lives in caves, he pretends he's insane, he, um, he has people betray him again and again and again, his own people. And we talked about the suffering, about how much betrayal and the hurt that goes along with that. He still has not become king. So the year is about 1,000, almost, I mean, that's a pretty accurate number. So it's about 1,000 B.C., and he is declared king of the south, of Judah. And he's got his men together, and he's declared king, but they don't live in Jerusalem just yet. So someone else is running the northern part. He's got the southern part. And about three years into it, we'll talk about this story when we get to Mountains of the Bible, which is our next series after Easter. But it's a really awesome story about David and his leader, how they sneak into Jerusalem and they overtake Jerusalem. So this is about three years into his kingship. He's still fighting. Uh, he's still fighting. I've got to look his name up because I'm not, this is why I'm not a pharmacist. Um, well, when you hear the name, you'll know why. Ithbosheth, that's his name. So he's fighting Ithbosheth, who's the guy in the north. He's eventually murdered, and David is declared king. So while he's king of the south, though, he gets married. We said earlier on, remember, he got married to Michael, and Saul, out of spite, takes Michael away. Well, he gets married, not once, um, not twice. Let's just jump to number eight. And so he gets married. Not everything about David's good here. This is not, this is not like an idea, here's my life plan here. So he gets married eight times, and he has these kids. And if you count up David's sons, it's, it ranges probably close to 20 sons that he has with all these women. And uh, he's in the south, and one of the sons is Amnon, and the other is a real famous name. That well, What do we know about Absalom? He's known for his hair. His hair was so glorious. Um, the Bible describes him as a beautiful human being, and there's no fault within him. And, he, and so he's the leader of men, and he had this, and probably of ladies, and he had this beautiful hair that was so, he would grow it, and it said he would cut it from time to time. And I don't know if this is an exaggeration. It said it would weigh five shekels, which is like five pounds, I think. And I don't know if that, I don't, I don't know how. This would be like if you give a moose a muffin or mustache, it would be a pile that big. But he's got this flowing hair. David's son, probably about his thirdborn, we'll come back to him. So David soon becomes king. After about seven years of battling, he becomes king of everything. And he's in Jerusalem finally. So don't think of Saul like ruling in Jerusalem. David, um, he's not in Jerusalem yet. He finally gets there. He's ruling everything. And he battles. That's what David does. He's a remarkably violent human being. Just read 2 Samuel. And if you just think David like, played the harp and stuff, like, just read 2 Samuel. Like, I'll give you one example. When they beat the Edomites, he had them lay head to toe like in a line, and every third one he let live, the other ones he killed. 
Like, you talk about trying to get on the right team when you're in grade school, and they're like, and you're flipping around trying to get on the kid who can really boot it. I, I don't know what happened there, but he lines up extremely violent human being and uh, passionate human being, and he finally defeats everything. Everything is at rest. So he becomes king, probably about 35 or so, and now it's 10 years in, so he's about 45 years old, and the, that's where the Bible tells us that when the kings go off to war, that's what they do in the spring because you don't want to in the lousy weather. So this is maybe April. The kings go off to war and David stays behind. And the other thing that's really interesting is it explains what his sons did. So he has all these sons, and you think, well, what would you do to train up your sons to be... He makes them advisors to the king. So they're like 14 to 8-year-olds old. Um, your brain, as we just read, he didn't read science, apparently, and, it, and David didn't watch TED Talks. Your brain does not finish developing till you're 25, but apparently he has like these 14 to 18-year-olds as advisors does that seem like a good plan? Well, if I was an advisor to the king at 14 to 18, I think I'd probably get into some trouble, and that's exactly what happened. But, so the, king, the, the boys are devise, advisors. Everyone's off to war, and this is where David goes to the top of his roof at about 45 years old or so, sees a woman bathing, and says, I want her to be mine. And that's that story of repentance we talked about. He, it leads to death, it leads to betrayal, and it leads to probably an eight-month period roughly, where in impenitence, um, he sits before Nathan confronts him with the story of this lamb, that you took this lamb away from me. So David recognized it, and he says, I have sinned before God. But part of the thing, if you remember from that story, if you're here on Ash Wednesday, remember it's not just that his son would die. What was the other thing that would happen to him? He said, there's going to be calamity on your house and your own sons are going to lie with your concubines in broad daylight. And so just imagine that stirring in your head. So the most immediate action happened fairly soon. It says the baby is born, and David mourns while the baby is sick, and about, I forgot what it is, a couple weeks, a week, the baby dies, and then he goes and he worships God. And we said that's a powerful thing to say, you know, God, you're in charge. So now David is, uh, you know, 45 years old, and he's got this weight of past sin sitting on his shoulders, right? He knows that something's going to happen. Now, these advisors are growing up. The advisors are growing up and growing up and growing up. After his affair, David gets back to what he should do as a king. He goes to battle, and he battles for about 10 years. So now he's about 55 years old or so, and we got to talk about Absalom. Absalom, um, anyone here teachers? Okay, you love the really good kids, right? I mean, because they just do their work Sometimes you have a heart for the naughty kids. Uh, my dad was a teacher, my mom was too, and then she became a co- uh, school counselor. But there's a, you have this heart for the naughty kids. My dad was like that. He wouldn't pay attention. The middle swath, they just do their stuff. But like the really high highs, you've got to keep an eye on. And then the naughty kids. Absalom fit into that category. So Absalom, his, his dad was, um, his grandpa was from Gershon, I think it is, and um, he gets into trouble. And this is how he got into trouble. You have all these king's sons, right, living in close proximity, and they have their houses, and they all live in Jerusalem. And then there's all these half-sisters and half-brothers that are going on. Well, Amnon, the oldest one, is in love with Tamar. That's Absalom's sister. And you see, just to totally show you how weird it gets, um, well, I'll tell you how weird it gets. He says, I'm totally in love with her. Absalom's aware of this. And in, um, Amnon says, I, wanna, um, I want this girl a lot. And so he comes up with this plan that says, I'm going to fake like I'm sick, and then I'm going to have her visit. And so she goes to visit him, and she's cooking some food for him. And he sends out all the servants, and, she, and he says, come to bed with me. 
And she refuses. She's like, this, is, this can't happen. And the weird part is she said, well, if you just ask our father, he'd say, yes, we could marry us. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. And he forces himself on her. And it's a real telling thing that you see actually a pattern of sin that after the sin, he is so appalled by her, it says he hates her more than he ever loved her. So he kicks her out and bolts the door. And Absalom sees and hears about this. So imagine, just imagine you're Absalom your older brother, who's a half-brother, forces himself on your sister. He's so angry, he's got to figure out how to do this, but I'll just, to tell you about Absalom, he just lets it lie for a while, for years. And finally, he says to his dad, hey, let, we want all the brothers to go up and um, offer a sacrifice. And his dad says, yeah, go ahead. David says, go ahead. And while they were there, um, they kill Amnon. And Part of that, we don't know the whole dynamics in there, but I would guess is Absalom, because David knew about what happened and did nothing to his oldest son. I think that also, just imagine that if you were in a household where, um, let's just say you had a stepbrother who abused your sister and your dad didn't do anything about it. I think I would burn with rage not only at the person, but I'd be angry at my dad, and that's exactly what happened. So he kills him, and he has to run away. So he runs away to his grandpa's house. You hear about the king of Gershon. So Absalom is now in there. He stays there, and he begs to say, can I come back to see Dad? And they, no, 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 no. And finally, he comes all the way back, and his dad says, I don't want to look at you. So for two years, he doesn't even see it. So we have a five-year span where David never even lays eyes on his own son. Well, finally, he comes, and you're like, what would be the dream scenario of a father and son who are, you could just picture this, who are with the friction and death, and you just picture a dad saying, I'm sorry, that I didn't do anything about it. And you picture a son saying, I'm sorry for what I did too. Couldn't you imagine something beautiful like that? Like a man after God's own heart like David? That's not what happens though. Absalom, uh, somehow they make up and it's fine, but Absalom then starts to plot and says, I'm going to take over. Not only am I going to get my dad, I can't take his life, but we'll take care of business. And he sits at the gate. So <laughs> we're going to make this up. Imagine I'm not saying hi to people as they enter church and someone else is and they've got stuff going on in their life, right? Because I'm busy. I'm talking to someone. They're like, hey, pastor's really busy. What's going on in your life? Can I pray for you? And they start saying, like, well, how about I come and visit and do some counseling? They start doing my job, right? And so now, could you imagine that your feelings towards that person saying, like, you know what? That person would be a good pastor because my pastor's always busy. He's drinking coffee and doing all this other stuff, and that's kind of how the people got. So for four years, Absalom works it at the city gate, and everybody loves him. And he's starting to mount this thing, and finally he says, um, they mount this, he said, when the trumpets go, declare Absalom king, and that's exactly what they do. And David has to leave his own house. And so you're like, wow. Now imagine that, you're kicked out of your own house, so I'm kicked out as pastor um, out of this, and this other person's here. This illustration now ends because there's death involved, so this is where it all ends. So... David goes and he, with his, and he gets, um, thankfully Absalom gets this bad advice that says, two, he gets two bad advice. Number one was, don't pursue David right away. David had all his wives and children and they didn't chase after him right away. Instead, they stay back. The other bad advice is, he says, you should set up a tent on the roof of the castle, the roof of the palace, and sleep with your father's concubines. So now just picture in the back of your head, David hears about this and what do you think, yeah, it's the very thing God said would happen because of his disobedience. And so he, he, he's away, and eventually, though, they rally and they fight and they battle. 
and David has his forces against Absalom's forces, and uh, this is the verse that comes up next. The battle is done, and David has made his way all the way back to the kingdom, and he's in his palace, and the, the people come, and he says, how is Absalom? And the king was shaken. It says he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. He said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, bani bani is how it is in Hebrew, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Does that make sense? You have a son that just rebelled against you, that just mocked you in front of the whole nation, that just tried to kill you multiple times, and his son dies and he weeps. Well, his general is there. His name is Joab. Joab is a smart guy. And Joab says, um, Joab went to the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the wives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse, than it, worse for you than all the calamities you have come on you from your youth till now. So David does go out and he, he comforts him. But I think I want to come back to, does it make any sense that David would mourn that much for his son that had done all those things to him? It does if you have a son, right? It does if you've got a kid. That no matter what they've done, so somehow when you see this love of David, it doesn't matter what that person has done against you. All this rebellion, all this pain, they could say things and do things, your heart still goes out. And I think if you talk about moms and dads, it's a little bit different. Mom's heart is always like this big, right? And it's only this big because that's all the bigger my wingspan is. It's actually bigger. Dad's heart, though, is a little bit different. And dads deeply, deeply love their kids. But there's, if, if you know any relationship, that, that line between love and I don't want to say the word hate is really thin. And I think a lot of you have probably strained relationships with your father and you just long for your father at that moment to say, I'm proud of you, come, let me give you a big hug. I'm so proud of you, but that, never, that conversation never happens, right? And so there's this, this love that your parents have for you and this frustration and it's just like this close. Well, you always love your kids regardless. And what's really remarkable about David in his situation is that last line, if we go back. If I had died instead of you. Just pause for a second. I don't know what kind of dad you had. This is just the, I don't know what kind of dad you have. And this is a human father. But I think it's a beautiful picture of the father that we really have. And so just take a moment. If you have issues with your own dad, just pause for a second and think about this. You've got a dad that is very much like King David. No matter what you have ever done or said or thought, God still cares about you and still longs to have this relationship. You Just like David longed for his son to come in those doors, that's what God desires as you're here in his house. He longs to have, you, have a relationship with you. And God's got this deep love that says not only, not only do I think I'd want to die for you, just think about that for a second. We have a God who says, I will die for you so that you have this relationship. So that's the basis of what we're going to talk about as we walk forward here. 
What things do you lament? And how do you handle and how do you actually get over these things? I think there's a couple things. One is acknowledge it. David had his issue, he lamented, and he moved forward. I think you have to acknowledge it. Some of you, I think, if you're anything like me, you've got a lot of pains that you just won't even talk about. And they just sit in the back of your head, and you never really even say it. It just sits in the back of your head, and you have this pain and this frustration. And what happens when you have that is you try and dull those thoughts, and you have a lot of different ways to do that, right? You can self-medicate, you can take prescription drugs, you can take alcohol, you can be super busy, you can overwork, you can overeat, you can do all these things to say, I'm going to just try and push this thing out of my life. The reality is, whatever your issue is, you have to acknowledge it. Then you have to check it. So once you acknowledge, here's why I am so frustrated, here's why I lament, and here's why I mourn, you have to check it. You have to check it for a couple things. Number one, is it legit? I lament the Packers' loss because in my mind they won the Super Bowl. That's a story I have said in my head. I do not know what would have happened as they went against the number one offense of the year that year. I don't know if they would have shut them down like that. So I tell this story in my head. This is what would have happened, so I lament that. I don't think that's legit. It's just not because we don't know what would have happened. You probably have told yourself a story. You've probably told yourself a story that if some circumstance has not happened, life would be way, way different. And maybe if you, some job thing would have been different, you would have a way better job now. Or if some school thing would have been, you're telling yourself the story, so you've got to check it, and you've got to check it for something else. What do you think the biggest pain in David's heart was when he saw the loss of his son? I don't think it's just death. I don't. I think the biggest pain in David as he looked at the loss of Absalom was as a dad, I just think as a dad, I could handle one of my kids, um, one of my faithful children dying. I really could. You know, it would be hard and I'd, I'd probably preach it, you know, two weeks later, but it would be really hard. It'd be way different if I had a son or a daughter who said, Dad, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And they run away. And I'm just longing for that. Maybe that door opens with no matter what their rebellion, what they've got themselves into, no matter what things they, sins they've done or how they've hurt my life, I just wait for that door to open, right? Remember the story of the prodigal God? Is it a surprise that the dad, when he sees his son who had run away, coming back, that he runs? I'd be sprinting, man. I'd be breaking handsprings, you know, handstrings, just to say, I'm so glad that you're back. Because every parent longs with a heart that says, my child is going to come back. David longed, I think, really deep down that Absalom was going to open that door one day and said, Dad, just as his father had said, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God, that day is gone never to return. And David knows in the back of his head, not only that, as a parent, do you think you'd reel back in your head and think about all the situations you had with that child? You think, how did I handle this situation? How did I handle this situation? Was I too hard in this situation? Should I have ever said that? And I think you'd go all the way back and and this guilt would sit on your shoulders and you always think, okay, it's going to get better one day, but that door for Absalom is never going to open. And so his heart laments, not just the loss of a human life, but the loss that that hope has now been shut. So when I say check it, you got to check it and say, what is my part? Acknowledge, this is why I'm frustrated, but also acknowledge your own part in it. And if that part involves sin, you got to fix it. If it's something you've done to someone, it's a choice you've made, you got to fix this, confess this to God and make it right with the other person. And finally, express it. <laughs> Um, 
This is why I'm sad. This is why I lament. Check to see if this is even a legitimate feeling. Confess those sins and then express it. You know, we bury so many things so deep down inside. Hey, everything's good. Everything's good. I am perfectly fine. Find someone where you can say, you know what? This is why I hate my job because this is what I thought was going to be like. My relationship, you've got to talk to someone and say, if you're struggling in your marriage, you've got to go talk to someone and say, hey, you know what? This is not quite how I envisioned it. We've got to work something out. We've got to do something about it. Let's fix this. If you're mourning the loss of someone who has died, you've got to express that thing. If you're mourning whatever it is, you've got to express that. But then ultimately, in the midst of those expressions, I told you about Jeremiah. We've got one more lesson. So Jeremiah, um, the weeping prophet, you never want him at your wedding. But he writes the book of Jeremiah, and you'd think, okay, if he's known as the weeping prophet, I bet his stuff is about the worst thing to read of all time. But in the midst, I'm going to just read you some passages from the book of Jeremiah. In the midst of a nation that's rebelled, in the midst of all his friends gone, the midst of the temple being destroyed, Jeremiah 1 verse 5, I knew you before you, formed, you were formed in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. God says, this is Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And just, just think about all these hurts that you have and these pains, and you just think of God's promises. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. God says, call on me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And after all this forgiveness of, of passage, that probably means a lot to you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I don't know what you're struggling with, if it was dreams of what, who you could have been, what your life would have been like, the relationship you could have had. You can't change the past. Just acknowledge it. Check to see if this is a legitimate feeling. Express those feelings out to God. Cry out to God. And in the midst of all that pain, always, always remember the promises of God that he loves you, he formed you, he forgives you, and he has a plan just for you. That involves a son who actually died for you to take your sins away. Amen. Heavenly Father, you truly are an amazing father. Some of us have struggled with relationships with our own father. We wish they would listen. We wish they would be proud. You were proud of your son who came and lived to perfection, who did everything that you asked. We have failed you. And if David can still love his son after rebellion, we know that as a true God, you can love us after our rebellion. Keep that door open for the people in our lives who are far from you. We pray that that door doesn't suddenly close like Absalom, but somehow it stays open and we long for that point of reconciliation. Maybe we're the ones who are the bridge to make that happen with you. And for us, if we're struggling with sin, let's lay that before you as we check this and trust your promises that say, uh, we don't have to hold on to this guilt, but you bring actual forgiveness to us. We ask this in your name. Amen.